You are now tuned in to the Decoding Success Podcast, where we reveal game-changing habits, formulas, and routines from the world's most successful individuals to help you think and live larger. Welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. You are rocking with your host, Matt Labrie, on an all-new episode of the Decoding Success Podcast. And I must say, that is exactly what we are doing here today. We are decoding the success of yet another game-changing and really amazing individual. And I must say, I am super excited to amplify it to all of you that are out there that are tuned into this. If you are new to the show, I must welcome you. And I also must urge you to make sure you're backtracking and listening to the other episodes that we've hosted with such amazing individuals because the advice, the experiences, the insight, the wisdom that these individuals share on this show weekly could really propel you so far in life, closer to what you dream of, what you imagine, etc. Make sure you're doing that. But today we are joined by an individual, and this is a really really awesome conversation we're diving into today. It is not just about business. It is about life. It is about relationships. It is so much bigger than just business. And I put it out there because, you know, who you are as a person is really what's going to determine what your business is capable of. Now, today we are joined by Mike McCallowicz. And I have to say, by his 35th birthday, he has founded and sold two multi-million dollar companies by 35 years old. That says a lot. Now, Mike is confident that he has the formula to success. He became a small business angel investor and proceeded to lose his entire fortune. I'll say that again. He lost his entire fortune. That's one of the things that we're actually diving into here. Then he started all over again, which goes to show you that you have the ability to start over at any point in your life. He was driven to find better ways to grow healthy, strong companies. Now, Mike devoted his life to the research and delivery of innovative, impactful entrepreneurial strategies for all all of us that are tuned into this episode right here. He's the creator of Profit First, which is used by hundreds of thousands of companies across the globe to drive profit. He's the creator of Clockwork, a powerful method to make any business run on automatic. And his latest, arguably most impactful discovery is Fix This Next, which is exactly what we're talking here today, by the way. In Fix This Next, Mike details the strategy businesses can use to determine what to do in what order to ensure healthy, fast, permanent growth and avoid debilitating distractions. This world is filled with distractions. Now today, Mike leads two new multi-million dollar ventures as he tests his latest business research for his books. He's a former small business columnist for the Wall Street Journal and business makeover specialist on MSNBC. Mike is a popular main stage keynote speaker on innovative entrepreneurial topics and is the author of Fix This Next, Clockwork, Profit First, Surge, The Pumpkin Plan, and The Toilet Paper Entrepreneur, which, hey, that came out way before this whole coronavirus thing and all the toilet paper was off the shelves. I'm just throwing that out there. Now, I'm really excited to dive into this. I have to give a huge shout out to our partners over at Acadium who help bring about even more value on top of what our guests bring to the show. Now, if you are looking for a remote marketing intern, someone that can help you with a project, maybe even in your business, if you're a podcaster, if you're a vlogger, a blogger, whatever the case is, if you need help with your social media all the way over to your website and anything in between, Acadium has remote marketing interns that are able to help you in any which way 
way you may need. Again, they're remote. We're all about this remote work right now. So it's a great advantage for you to be diving into this deal. You don't even need to stop listening to this episode to check them out. All you need to do is head over to the show notes, click that pretty little link that says Acadium, and you will be directed to their directory, their database, full of amazing individuals that are ready and willing to work with you. But now, without further ado, I introduce to you our friend, Mike Michalowicz. Mike, first and foremost, man, appreciate you joining us and super excited to have your success decoded here on the show today. So really excited, man. Man, it's a joy to be with you, especially another Northeastern guy. We'll both be speaking at like rapid speed. (laughs) (laughs) We most definitely will. So Mike, let me kick this off. This is how we always kick off the show. I want to know how you personally define success. You know, success to me translates to joy and impact. So it's a combo deal. But uh, in, in any endeavors of my life, is it driving joy for me? And am I being of service to others? And if, if that combination is happening, it is success for me. I love that. So what is bringing you joy and impact these days? And I'm sure your definition of success has transformed over the years. So yes. I very much so appreciate the, you know, the transparency and what it is today. But what's bringing you joy and how are you impacting today? Yeah, and, and I'm sure it'll change in the future too. But uh, I'm committed to eradicate entrepreneurial poverty. And this is this gap between where people believe an entrepreneur is wildly successful the day they start their business. They have gobs of money. They just hang out on the beach all day long. And the reality is the struggle, the challenges, and many entrepreneurs have no money whatsoever. I'm committed to closing that gap. So that's my commitment. And I do it by writing books. uh, And and that's my joy. And, And I hope but only readers can tell me if I'm being of service, you know, they'll, they'll tell me if, if I'm having impact, but I'm definitely having, getting satisfaction and, and joy out of serving in that manner. A hundred percent, man. I definitely respect it. I, I appreciate you sharing that. And I know you have over half a million readers of your books and yeah. you've keynote, you know, you've keynoted some massive events nonetheless. So I'm really excited to dive into your new book in just a little bit. But before we do that, yeah. I want to kind of bridge the gap as to where Mike is today, finding success as joy and impact. But let's backtrack. Who was Mike in high school? What was he doing? What was the dream back then? Uh, well, <laughs> my, Mike in high school was the skinny kid getting picked on by the other kids, really trying to find my way, um, but also class clown. And it's funny, you know, I, I literally, this is true, yesterday returned to my old high school. They, they asked me to do a presentation to the student body, and I was, I was ready to walk on stage and hear like one student go, loser, you know, and they, <laughs> someone wings like a rotten tomato at me, but uh, they were amazing. I was well received. And um, as I'm waiting to go down to speak of the class, they they had me literally wait in the principal's office uh, at the old high school. And one kid got escorted in and he got in trouble for being the class clown. And uh, I can relate to that. Uh, The the class clown is someone that that feels compelled to speak up and and honestly is seeking some attention. And and to some degree, I was that guy. Um, But now it, it served me that I'm, a will, I'm willing and desirous to speak up about things in the business space that maybe other people aren't ready to speak up about yet. Um, so that, that there's been some good lessons there. And, and high school is very humbling too. Um, so I'm a big fan of the underdog entrepreneur. 
I could very much so resonate with what you were saying in regards to being the class clown. In fact, I often allude to the fact that I was probably good at three to four things throughout my, you know, entire academic career. One of them being, you know, ending up in the principal's office. But um, <laughs> yeah, I get it. So what was the dream back then though? Did you always want to get into business? Did you, I don't know, maybe you wanted to be a professional sport player or something of that nature? Oh, you know, that's the funny thing. No, I had uh, no business aspirations. Um, I, I did play sports in, in high school and in college. I was a lacrosse player, but um, didn't really have aspirations in that space. I enjoyed the activity. What I thought I would do was get one job for the entirety of my life. And the reason was, is that my, that's why my parents taught me. My, my father had one job since the day he started working and he worked with that company until the, his day he retired. And, um, and, and that was the expectation was I'd find that dream job and work there forever. The only thing is when I graduated college, there, there was no dream job waiting for me. So I had to start finding my own ways. I actually fell into entrepreneurship. I, I never thought I would be one. Right. So talk to me about that. I mean, I, I've heard that, you know, not as often as I would have thought by having a podcast for over a year, right? Some people say that they've always wanted to be in business because their parents were, or you want to know what, maybe they wanted to be in business because uh, they, they had to in a way, but only a handful, maybe less, said they fell into it. So what was that process like for you? So that you didn't have that dream job coming out of college, but, you know, talk to me about that. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't have the dream job. I had to move back home, which was like the most humbling experience, and then work for a local computer store. And I'm working there, and not only I'm selling printers and stuff, and, and one day I go out for drinks with another guy who works there, and rather, and I start lamenting about the boss at the um, computer place. I'm like, you know, he makes all the money. He sits in the back room counting uh, the, the cash and smoking cigars while I'm hustling out front, you know, schlepping computers and, and moving printers. And I said, I could do this on my own. I, 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 I could start my own company. Well, you throw a couple of cold ones in you and all of a sudden you start believing it. So I'm like, you know, five drinks in, I'm like, I can do anything on my own. And I, <laughs> I left this like drunken voicemail for the boss saying, I quit. I'm starting my own business. I kick ass. And, um, the next morning I woke up with sobriety and I said, Oh God, I like to have my job back. And the guy's like, screw you kid. You're on your own. He goes, and plus, I'm going to destroy you. Um, you're, you're a scumbag. And, uh, you know, I don't recommend burning bridges, but I burned it in the most grand fashion of all. And uh, I had to figure it out. So the next day, I'm in business, no clue what I was doing. Um, I started to call the clients of my old employer saying, hey, I started my own computer business, which I didn't know you can't do that. Um, so I got sued that same day. The first facts that came into my fax machine that I thought it would, be, it would be an order was a lawsuit um, uh, against me for stealing clients. And uh, that's how I started. Uh, it was pure fear and panic. But I'm now grateful for that because I found – I found fear is this amazing driver. You, I, I was getting up at five in the morning and working till five o'clock next morning because I was so terrified. Um, I, I do realize that fear, you know, per, into perpetuity becomes stress and, and dangerous. But for the first few years, it, it was the biggest motivator. I had to succeed. 
So how did you channel that fear into the positive, right? That's what I'm really curious about because you talk about you essentially throwing yourself into the turbulence of entrepreneurship, right? Yeah, By yeah. taking the actions in which you did. So how did you turn that fear into a positive, right? How did you turn that, adva- you know, the adversity into an advantage? Yeah, so I, I found there's, there's three distinct emotional stages, at least for me, fear, then confidence, and then aspiration. And the, the fear stage was the first few years. The confidence stage, happened when I started to get calls from prospects without having to outreach. Uh, I, I, I was initially, you know, I, I literally tried trying to sell door to door, which was demoralizing at best, dehumanizing uh, at, at some cases. And I, I slowly got a couple clients here and a couple clients there out of fear. But then the day happened when someone called up and said, hey, I heard about you from this company. They really think great things of you. Uh, we're interested in hiring you for your services. And when that happened a few times in a row, I was like, oh my gosh, this is the sense of momentum. And started to bring about confidence. I, I would listen, I did not get rich at that phase, but I started to get more and more rich in confidence. And uh, that confidence started to diminish the necessity to get up at five in the morning and work till five the next morning. I was able to start sleeping a little bit better at times, but you know, fear creeped in again. It wasn't like I eradicated fear. The days came as I started to grow and hire employees. I had no experience there. And, uh, I, 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 I couldn't afford employees. I was hiring prematurely and then panic started to ensue as more and more stress and burden came into my company. So it was a, it was a, from fear to confidence, but dipping back in fear and oscillating between the two for years until I finally kind of figured out the formula that works. And that's when it became aspirational. Like, holy cow, I can use this as a vehicle to do great things. Right. I love that. Now, if you could put together this perfect formula for someone that is listening to this, that wants to start a business and you know, the absolute basics based on your experiences and what you would or wouldn't do again, what do you feel like that perfect formula is to start? Like what needs to be in place? What do you have to have from a characteristic standpoint versus, you know, a financial standpoint, so on and so forth? Yeah. So I would actually go into a business with less money than it did in the beginning. In the beginning, I didn't have much. I had $10,000 in savings and I put everything into it and I burned through that 10,000 bucks within a week because I said, I need to get a logo and a great logo is going to cost me a thousand dollars and I need to get nice office furniture uh, so that I can work comfortably. And the, I didn't understand what my business needed. I just assumed and, and, and grabbed things and blew money very quickly. Um, I, what I've discovered is, and I've started many businesses since the less money I put into the venture, the more I have to be innovative in making it successful and they've become more successful. So ironically, I would start a business if I did it again, and I have done it again, with, with less and less money, no money. Um, the second thing is I, I would go in with purpose, you know, beyond making money. And in the beginning, it's very hard because, you know, we need money. That's a source of sustainability. But what I realized is money, at least for me, only motivates me so much. Like, once there's a degree of comfort in my lifestyle, more money doesn't seem to drive more um, excitement and energy. I, I've tried it. I, I've made a lot of money and there's a certain point where that, that motivation fades out quickly. But I found there's another thing that can never be quenched and therefore it's a permanent motivator and it's purpose. Like what's the greater purpose I'm looking to serve? And as I shared already, I'm looking to eradicate entrepreneurial poverty. That is such a visceral emotion for me that I, I, I can't stop. That's instead of, 
before I was running away from problems and trying to run toward money. Now I'm getting almost dragged forward with this commitment, this mission. So purpose and shockingly, the lack of money are the two things I'd walk in with. I love that. So Mike, break this down for me. I, I want to monkey proof this. What do you mean by eradicate entrepreneurial poverty? Yeah. So, okay. So there is this perception of what successful entrepreneurship is. And the day, Matt, you started your business, I started mine. Anyone starts their business, the outside world who's not familiar with entrepreneurship looks at us and says, oh, now you're a millionaire. Like they literally think we're rich overnight. Right. Oh, Matt, all you do is you just hang out all day and do whatever you want, smoking cigars or hitting the beach or whatever, and everyone's working for you. But the reality of entrepreneurship is most of us have no money. There's constant panic. We're carrying the business on our back. We're working exhaustively. This gap between what the world perceives us as this easy, rich life and the reality is what I call entrepreneurial poverty. And my life's mission is to close the gap. I truly believe entrepreneurs should be very successful financially, time-wise, because we are setting the precedent for our employees. Uh, we are the contributors for our community by hiring vendors, by spending money. Small business drives the economy. And uh, the fact that so many entrepreneurs struggle, and I was one of them, frustrated me so much that now I have this mission to eradicate that poverty. I love that. That's awesome. And I definitely appreciate you sharing that. And obviously, you know, you're alluding to your experiences and going into detail about them and they've yielded you or all of your experiences have yielded you the opportunity to build multi-million dollar companies, sell them. So I'm curious, comparing the two, what worked, what didn't work, what are like the top three things when you look at it full spectrum? Yeah. So the first thing that works in, in, that I found in, in building a business was committing to a specific community. It's a niche. And um, surprisingly, I shouldn't say surprisingly, I was so resistant to it. And so many entrepreneurs I speak to hear it, but don't get it. A niche is where you specialize in serving a special community in a special way. The, the analogy is this. There's, there's heart surgeons and there's general practitioners. A general practitioner will uh, will be uh, able to examine you for whatever, the coronavirus or whatever the big virus of the day is, <laughs> and, right? And um, can diagnose it. And the general practitioner can look at that skin rash or, or diagnose that cough, but they typically can't serve it if it's anything below a surface level thing. They can give you a cough medicine and some ointment for your skin. But if they say, oh my gosh, you have coronavirus or, oh my gosh, that cough is actually indicative of a heart disease, then you go to a specialist. The specialist uh, attracts the most demanding clients, people that see their life on the line here. The, in here now we compare the two. The general practitioner attracts people in the general audience or the general vicinity who generally won't pay much. Like a $50 copay is pretty much the max. But a heart surgeon, you know, if I have heart disease, I'll travel anywhere in the world and I'll find a way to get you know a million dollars or whatever from a borrow, beg and steal because my life's on the line. Well, when it comes to our business, when we specialize in saving business lives, however we want to define that, people will seek us out. And the only way to do that is to focus on a very specific community in a very special way and repeatedly cater to that market. As an example, in my, I had two tech businesses I sold. Uh, my first tech business was in computer systems. But 
instead of saying we'll serve anyone, we focused only on hedge funds and we became really specialized at the hedge fund market and all the special requirements they had. So if you had a hedge fund, very quickly you started to hear about us because we catered to your market, but we knew the hedge fund market better than anyone else. And we could dictate a premium. Because when a hedge fund came to us, they and said, hey, we need a, net, a computer network. We'd say, well, you need a Bloomberg field and ILX. You need, blah, blah, blah. And we'd rattle the stuff off and say, you know, it's, it's X, Y, Z dollars, which could be two or three times the competitor because the competitor didn't even know the stuff we're talking about. It's, it's a heart surgeon about to do heart surgery versus a general practitioner trying to do heart surgery. So, so step one is pick a niche and go all in on it. It's a specialty community with a specialty offering. That's the key. Uh, the, the second thing is... Um, I, I wish I relabeled myself from an entrepreneur to a shareholder. I, this is something I realized recently in life. I've been calling myself an entrepreneur, and I love the word. I love what it stands for until recently because an entrepreneur has become a bastardized with hustle and grind. Like right. if you're an entrepreneur, you've got to work your ass off. That's the definition of it. And I, I hate to say, see that because an entrepreneur – by traditional definition, is someone that organizes the resources around them to achieve a vision. So it's not about doing the work. It's about figuring out how to help empower other people, technology, your vendors, and even the clients themselves, organizing them collectively to achieve a vision. And so I've, I've abandoned the term entrepreneur and I call myself a shareholder. So when I'm at like a party or someone like, hey, what do you do? I don't say I'm a you know, business owner or an entrepreneur. I say I'm a shareholder in some small businesses. And it is like a deer in headlights. People are like, what the hell does that mean? And I'm like, well, I, I, I have an equity stake in these small businesses and I render my opinion um, in these businesses. And because I'm a shareholder, I can also insert myself at times to, to do the things that give me joy, like doing an interview like this and stuff. So the label dictates my behavior. So that's the second thing I would have done. And uh, the, the third thing is I wouldn't have sought money. So I, I've raised venture capital, angel raises, like all that stuff. And um, it sounds so sexy from the outside. Like, hey, man, we just raised a Series A, you know. And uh, for me, that stuff was nonsense. OPM, other people's money, actually triggered me to spend fragrantly, uh, flagrantly. <laughs> not fragrant, flagrantly, I just aimlessly, and I blew money. Um, it's when I used my own money that I became disciplined in the management of money. So I believe in using my own cash now to start up with as little as possible and to treat money like, like the lifeblood it is for an organization. Right. First and foremost, you know, I really appreciate you breaking it down in that sense. I mean, I like to think that entrepreneurship isn't fucking rocket science at the end of the day, right? right? And success right. leaves clues. I mean, what you're saying has been said to me by Damon John of Shark Tank when I was with him multiple oh, times. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. you know, like the, the list really goes on and hearing it from multiple different people over and over and over again, it like really gets ingrained. And it's like, hey, dude, like this is what fucking works. And this is what yeah. does it. Like it's, you know what, it's you know out what, there. You know what I found, Matt, so interesting is, is, Truth, and you nailed it. Truth is in, in, in noticing these common threads that resonate with us. And that's what I started to do is I used to believe that if, if it was written in a book or someone said it, that's probably what I need to do. And I was jumping all around. Now I, I've been much better at listening for patterns. So if, if I hear of an idea, I register it, but I don't take necessarily action on it. I, I, I evaluate, does this idea come up again and again? And does it resonate with me? And if, if I hear something enough times and it resonates with me enough times, then I'm like, okay, this is something I need to go all in on. Right, exactly. Though, let me ask you this. You mentioned, you know, you being resistant to 
diving into a niche. So was that just in the early stages? Because I'll tell you from my own experience here. I mean, I was in business from 17 to 24 while I was in college, but to say I was really in business, that would be a lie. But after I, after I graduated college, worked with Damon for three years and then eventually left to, you know, launch some passion projects. I was very resistant to picking a niche as well, because at the end of the day, I said, you know what, I'm in the early stages of my business. I need to make fucking money. Yeah. You know, so like that was what my resistance came down to. And then I realized a niche isn't necessarily just an industry. It could also be how much money a business is making or how many employees they have, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm curious, what was your resistance? Yeah. So uh, it, in the beginning, you, you got to make money. And so in the beginning, you know, anyone and their mother was an opportunity and right. I grabbed for it. Um, and I think that is actually necessary. I would argue an early stage business does not make a niche commitment on day one. Um, but at a certain point, trying to be, uh, to serve all people all ways makes you a jack of all trades and a master of none. And, uh, I didn't realize it early on, but as I was doing this, um, at a certain point, it's like, wow, I always have to be constantly learning something new. If you constantly need to be learning something new, um, that points to the lack of mastery. Mastery is the repetition, um, to do stuff at a perfection level at an efficient level and the learning isn't in learning something new it's in learning how to do what you're already doing better faster quicker more consistently and uh and that's niche specialization so once i had that realization uh i started to commit to a specific community and and now now it wasn't about constantly learning something new and learning something at surface level it was learning very deeply um and and not all, listen, not all clients put huge value in, in heart surgeons. It's only the people that are having a heart attack that put value in a heart surgeon, but they put a massive amount of value in you. So when you become a niche specialist, maybe it's the only 20% of the community that sees massive value in you, but they're the ones who can spend 80% of the money. Right. That's huge. Now, Mike, let me ask you this. Are you a baseball guy? Uh, not really. Not, not really. I mean, I, I watch it. I go to like maybe a pro game once or twice a year. I go to the minors. I really enjoy the minors. I see that regularly. All right. I, the reason I bring that up, I want to throw a curveball here. I'm really enjoying this conversation. And um, I, I can tell your experience, right, in business. I'm sure you've done a million in one of these podcasts and you have people come up to you all the time. But I'm curious, what's a question you wished more people would ask you and how would you answer it? You know what, what no one asks is the role of the spouse. Um, they're like, so, you know, they, they talk about all the secrets to business and all that stuff. And I don't think there's any necessarily secrets. It's, it's your point. It's common threads. But no one really talks about the role of the spouse in the entrepreneurial endeavor. And I think one reason I've been able to navigate this journey through, I've, I've had some really dark periods and I've had some wonderful successes, but the only reason not the only reason, but the primary reason I've been able to navigate it is a spouse that was willing to go along for the journey. The analogy I use is this, that for most spouses, we have to realize that it's the, we're in a car. Entrepreneurship is like racing down a highway at top speed in a car that has no steering wheel and we're driving this thing. So all we have is a gas pedal and a brake and we're just flying down the road careening around. But the spouse is in the passenger seat without a seatbelt. For them, it's even more terrifying. They they can't even put the bump, the pump the brakes for the car. So it's a terrifying ride. It's this necessity to have active communication on how entrepreneurship is affecting them uh, and affecting our personal lives. So, you know, entrepreneurs with a spouse or significant other, I mean, you know, anyone in that capacity, um, 
that significant other can be very important for grounding us, for keeping us in check, for not us going so overboard in our entrepreneurial endeavors that we avoid every other element of life, which I was at risk of doing. My wife has got me anchored, but also uh, reminds me of the terror this journey can cause uh, to other people. So it definitely kept me grounded. That's amazing. You know, and it's so funny how the world works. I've literally been having this conversation with multiple individuals, not even just on the show, but just in life in general. I'm really curious right now, Mike, I know that you, you know, you, you had some dark times, as you mentioned, you know, you lost your house at a point, you lost your fortune twice. And I'm not talking fortune cookies, not like we don't lose fortune cookies. That's for sure. But, um, you know, you had some failed business attempts and things of that yeah. nature. So was your wife with you through all of this? All this. Yeah. So I got married very, young so we, we had our first son at 21 and we've been married ever since and um she's been through the highs and the lows and it, it is really terrifying I, I there's been a couple times where she said the words that are the most painful things for an entrepreneur to ever hear she said mike you, you need to get a job we need that Fuck. stability and hearing the words you need to get a job is a is a knife to the heart of an entrepreneur and um and, you know, my response is like, you have to trust me, like, <laughs> which is crazy. It's like you have to go for this crazy journey. Um, but it brought balance. She drove the necessity that, they're, that you know, taking wild risks um, cannot sustain a family, that there needs to be some form of stability, financial stability. And um, I was able to, to, to focus on work that brought stability um, while while pursuing a dream. And, and this is what I found is you know, today I'm an author. I've been an author for, for 12 years. I do still own some businesses. And um, I found that I always wanted to be an author. That was a dream of mine ever since I can remember. But I also thought that I needed all the money in the world to one day become an author. And uh, probably you, Matt, you've heard that question. People listening in have heard that question. You know, if you had all the money in the world, what would you do? Well, that dream, the problem with it is it presupposes you need all the money in the world to fulfill that dream. So when I was at rock bottom financially and, and had lost a business, I asked myself, what's the vocation I'm going to follow to put food on the table? And I said, you know what, I want to and will be an author who makes money. And when a vocation and a dream comes into alignment, that's a calling, like that's a must do. So I set out to learn how to become a successful, fiscally successful author, not only an author that, that has impact. And um, from day one, my authorship journey has been highly profitable and highly sustainable and it's fulfilling my dream of the impact I want to have. I love that. That's amazing. And it's really incredible to hear that, you know, you have a writer by your side, right? Someone that's with you through the highs and lows, you know, like that, that, listen, I'm 27 years old. I'll tell you, Mike, straight up. That's rare as fuck. You know, it Um, is, dude. It is. It is. Yeah. It's crazy. I feel blessed. And, you know, she had no idea what we're going into because I had no idea. She, we, when we started this business, she, um, you know, we, she was, we were in our twenties and, and she'd never married an entrepreneur and I had never had been one. So I, 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 I told her, I said, Hey, Hey baby, I'm going to, I'm going to put diamonds on your, on your, your fingers and, and we'll get you a diamond necklace. And I think if I start a business, it'll probably happen in the next three or four months. <laughs> well, <laughs> it, it took more like three or four decades. It feels like, but, um, it, it, she didn't know what she was getting into, but 
but she's been devoted to keeping me grounded while supporting my dreams. And, and I hope I've been devoted to supporting her dreams uh, while she keeps herself grounded. That's amazing, man. That's amazing. I'm, I'm happy you found that. And uh, I'm confident that one day the, the good Lord is going to bless me with the rarity, the unicorn, maybe even the black unicorn of uh, something similar. <laughs> I, suspect, talk- I suspect he will. <laughs> he will. He will. Let's talk about the new book. You have the new book coming out. You're just talking about being an author and how, you know, you made that vocation plus the dream and that being aligned was the calling. So you have a new book out, fix this next, make the vital changes that will level up your business. Break down that title for me. What's inside of this book? Yeah. So fix this next is um, a strategy to pinpoint what to work on within our business. Here was my big find and it became the thesis of the book. The biggest challenge entrepreneurs have is knowing what their biggest challenge is. So, Meaning, we always rush to the apparent and obvious issues. But listen, you can, you can just open your email and you'll find a hundred things that need to be worked on immediately. That's no way to run a business. We need to identify the one thing that will have the greatest impact on our business. So Fix This Next was a tool I developed. It's called the Business Hierarchy of Needs. That's the tool and the essence of the strategy. That is a hierarchy of needs that all businesses have. And through a series of simple questions, we can pinpoint where a business, any business exists at the moment, go about resolving that. And once it's resolved, we can pinpoint the next challenge and then the next challenge after that. That's huge. So why now on your journey, are you writing this book? Like why in 2020 did you say, okay, this is the time to put this out? Yeah. So I, um, I, I, I listen to my readers actively and I, I get emails. I am so blessed. I get probably an email every 10 minutes now from a reader sharing something. It's it's unbelievable. It's like my dream come true. And um, so much so that I have one person here, Jenna, who's dedicated to simply reviewing email and giving me summaries every day so I can keep on top of what's going on. And uh, what I'm trying to look for amongst other things in those emails are what's the new challenge people have. And and sometimes people can't enunciate it. They can't say what their problem is clearly, but – you can kind of read between the lines. And I started to see consistently the challenge being, I don't know what to work on. I'm frustrated. I'm taking two steps forward and three steps back. I, I read your book. I thought it should be this. And I thought it should be that. What should I do now? And that's when it became clear. I needed to write something that helps us pinpoint what to work on next. Now, if someone could only take away, let's just say one thing from this book, what do you want that one thing to be and why? That I want people to take what I call the pregnant pause. So between every action, there's a to every action there's a reaction. But for most of us entrepreneurs, the action happens and the reaction is almost simultaneously. There's no time to think and, and pause. So customers pissed, we say, oh, "I'll fix this," and we say, "You know, we'll give you a quick discount." All right, next problem, and that's how we're moving along. The pregnant pause is simply to sit down and say, "Are we being deliberate about?" bring about systemization, organization, and focus for our, organ- our company. So when, when, when the, that customer calls and says, I'm pissed, that hopefully people that have read this book will say, where, where is this problem happening on the business hierarchy of needs? And what do I need to do to systemically fix this so this problem never happens again? And that thought and question may just take 30 seconds, 60 seconds, but that little pause of really considering the, the root cause of issues and then resolving them will bring about permanent change as opposed to superficial individual change. So 
let me just try and get a little bit more clear on that. Are you referring to something along the lines of like, hey, like breathe before you respond? Or is it more so along the lines of being proactive as opposed to reactive? Yeah, good, good question. So it's a combination of both. It, it, we are still going to be put in reactive situations, and that is a breathe before you respond. But we need to ultimately get in front of things. So to continue to be having to respond is, is a problem. Fix this next. The goal is to start moving us in front of the problems before they even present themselves. And uh, what I explain in this business hierarchy of needs is foundationally every business has a sales need. Sales is the, is the creation of cash for an organization. It's the lifeblood of an organization. You need sales. But the next level above that is profitability, which translates to sustainability. And unfortunately, many businesses, even at these first two stages, get confused. Many businesses that are not profitable say, ah, oh, we need to sell our way out of it. Well, that's not how you become profitable. Profit is a system. Profit is ensuring that the products or the services we're providing individually are profitable, that there's right margin. There's a lot of considerations there. So the solution isn't this panic, I got to sell my way out of it. So we can start getting in front of these problems by taking pause, evaluating really on this hierarchy where we sit at the moment and really addressing those issues there as opposed to reverting to the common belief, you know, more sales will get us out of this situation. That's huge. That is absolutely huge. I absolutely love that. And I'm going to make sure that the link to where they can or where everyone can grab this book is going to be in the show notes of this episode. But I definitely appreciate that. This sounds like something that's right up my alley. And uh, I appreciate you sharing that. But Mike, before we wrap up here, I have three questions that I ask every interviewee. The first one's going to sound a little cliche, but bear with me because I'm going to reverse engineer it to pull something out of you. Um, First question, best piece of advice you've ever received? Uh, so it's crazy. Best piece of advice was my first ever business coach. I asked him a question and he says, I'll tell you the answer, but don't listen to me. That was the best advice. Don't listen to me. Cause he, here's what he said. I was asking about selling into a market and he goes, I'll give you my advice. But he goes, be very careful of expert advice because it's biased and steeped in their experience. No one knows the customer like the customer themselves. He goes, don't trust people's words, trust their wallets. So I've been very cautious when it comes to serving a customer base and, and, and catering to them of listening to the advice of experts, including myself. What I do is I listen to the customer. That's huge. And you want to know what? We just had Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert on this show, and he said the exact same thing. Oh, did he? Was a, cool. He said the exact same thing in regards to be careful of expert advice. And he gave an example of why. And it's just so funny how this all aligns. Like that, That's amazing. But let me ask you, do you feel like having a business coach is necessary? And the reason I ask, I just hired a, a life coach because I mean, um, I just wanted to level up in my life. I wanted to get rid of my, you know, my upper ceilings that were keeping me at a certain financial standpoint, et cetera. Like how necessary yeah. do you feel like having a coach is? For me, it's an absolute, like if I don't have a coach, I'm in trouble. And, um, you know, the analogy, like even the best athletes in the world have coaches. And of course that's true. But for me in business, what it is, is an unbiased, uh, unemotional vantage point. So, uh, my business coach actually is coming in in a few days and, uh, we're facing an opportunity here and I came up with an idea to really exploit it. So I'm all excited. I'm hyped up on it. So I have this bias of optimism. Well, he'll come in. He has no investment in my business. He doesn't benefit from the upside and he doesn't languish in the downside. He just speaks his truth. So to have someone that can see an opportunity from that vantage point may identify it as actually more of a problem than, than an opportunity. So a coach and their unbiased feedback 
definitely tempers the highs and the lows of, of me. Right. That's huge. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, at the end of the day, um, that's exactly why I hired a coach, right? It was because, you know, you, you look at the the greatest people in this world and they all have coaches in some way, shape or form. And right. um, having a mentor was phenomenal. And obviously getting mentorship from individuals like you that hop on the show is great. But at the same time, like having a coach there, um, you know, whether that's every two weeks, every week, whatever the case is, was an absolute game changer. So I appreciate you sharing that, Mike. But as mentioned, I wanted to reverse engineer that question. I asked you what the best piece of advice was. Let me ask you this. What was a piece of advice that you were given that you didn't want to hear at the time it was given to you, but ended up proving to be true over time? (laughs) That's such an easy one, uh, that the challenges I face are the biggest opportunities. The problems I have are the biggest wins in learning. You know, you learn the pain and I'm like, no, I, I'm, I'm smarter than that. I don't need to suffer to learn. Um, and so I didn't want to believe that. And when I lost all my money the first go around and it just devastated me, I was like, it was so painful, but I became committed never to experience that again. I, I, it was only at that point when I had the financial heart attack, I was willing to reinvestigate all of my beliefs and mythology around entrepreneurship and start from the, from the base. So unfortunately, I think that, that, that is a truth that, for many of us, maybe for all of us, we need to have the equivalent of the financial heart attack or that traumatic moment to realize what we're doing that's not working really isn't working. And at that point, commit to something that does. Right. And you know, it's, you know, God rest his soul, but Kobe Bryant had a quote very similar to what you just mentioned along those same lines. And um, I forgot what it was exactly. So I'm not going to say it. I'm going to totally botch it and I don't want to do that. But let me ask you, why do you feel like we need to kind of hit that rock bottom point to be able to make change or, or, or something of that nature. Well, because that's the nature of entrepreneurship. Like you need to be ridiculously overly confident in yourself. Like that's the definition of entrepreneurship because you're entering a space that you haven't before. You're introducing something that's never been introduced, maybe a concept that has, but you're the first business with your name doing this. So it's new. And the only way to do that is to walk into it boldly and, and courageously and, and confidently perhaps overconfidently, but that also becomes our detriment because we we're walking in with this cockiness and this boldness. And then when something's wrong, we, we just maintain that mindset and that's where it hurts us. So sometimes it's only when the brick wall collapses around us and that pan, frying pan hits us in the face that we wake up and realize, oops, that wasn't working. Right, right. Yeah, that's huge. I mean, I always, you know, I'm curious when I hear people talk about hitting rock bottoms and things of that nature, why they feel like we we need to get to that point before we could actually, you know, make some sort of shift. But I definitely appreciate your perspective on that. Now, Mike, last question for you. I want to respect your time here. If you had the opportunity to only give, and I'm saying like the rest of your life here, I know you're on stages all the time, you're writing Mm -hmm. books, all this good stuff, you're on podcasts. If you could only give one piece of universal advice for the rest of your life, what would that be? Uh, the real is this is to entrepreneurs because that's my community. I, I would tell those folks, you got to understand your clients are dying for you to be profitable. They want it for you so badly, but they will never say those words. Like a client will never come to you and say, "Hey, can you charge me more? Um, <laughs> hey, would you ri- would you rip me off today?" They'll never say those words. But here's what a customer will say: 
I'm, I'm engaging your services because I believe in you and I want you to serve me. I want you to be undistracted. I don't want anything but focus on me. I want you to cater to me like I'm the most important client you've ever had. I want you to be all in on me. And the reality is the only way you can be devoted, focused on a client to be worry-free is if you're wildly profitable. If you're worrying about, I'm not making enough money, I gotta get the next client in the door, you can't cater to the client that's in hand right now. So as a result, clients do want you to be profitable because they need your focus. So you, entrepreneurs, we have a responsibility to be very profitable. Yeah, that is huge. That is absolutely huge. I appreciate that, Mike. Now, again, I'm going to make sure that the link to the book is in the show notes of this episode, the website, all that good stuff. Where are you on social? Where do you hang out the most? Uh, I'm most on Instagram now. I, I used to be Twitter, but I'm shifting over to Instagram, so I'm there. And it's Mike Michalowicz. You know, you got, it's going to take a few iterations to spell it, but it's Mike Michalowicz on Instagram. Well, I mean, if they need any of the iterations, they can go over to your website. And have <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. That is hilarious. That is absolutely hilarious. I love that. But Mike, I definitely appreciate you hopping on here. It was an absolute pleasure. Matt, it's been a joy. Best to you, brother. And there it is, ladies and gentlemen, from our friend, Mike Michalowicz. Make sure you are checking him out through all the links in the show notes of this episode where you can find him on social, his website, where you can get his new book, Fix This Next and Beyond. That's all in the show notes of this episode. Again, super easy to just click a link and boom, you are there. Wherever you're hanging out, he is there. I promise you that. On top of that, you could find me in the show notes of this episode as well. If you haven't checked out the new website, you want to see some free resources, learn more about me, connect with me, you could always head over to the show notes find me on all the social platforms as well as the brand new website that is out now and live you can also listen to the podcast on the website too which is pretty damn cool on top of that i want to ask you to make sure you're sharing this with the people in your circle i know i didn't say it in the beginning of the episode sometimes it just slips my mind but i want to make sure that you're continuously sharing these shows make sure that you're continuously adding value to the people around you right whether they're your friends in your group chats where you share all your memes all day or maybe they're in your mass mind group maybe they're your co-workers on a slack channel whatever the case is make sure you're sharing this in some way shape or form and until next time everyone be blessed peace